Now, friends, when we come to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we now see actually that which was the result of the defection that was in the church. We saw that the defection was in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. We believe they were saved, but we feel that they, with that lie in their lives, could not live in the early church. The church was too holy for them. But now this defection led actually to the selection of deacons, and that was due to the defection. And we also have in this chapter 6 now the account of one of these, and we'll see that he was framed and that he was arrested and he was tried, and that's Stephen, of course. Now, will you follow along with us here as we look at the appointing of deacons? The need for officers, you see, was created by a crisis which arose in the early church. Now, I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 6 of Acts. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, this that had taken place in the early church is something that we need to recognize that they had attempted to put in a form of communal living. And actually, they succeeded for a while, but carnality entered the church. And when it did enter the church, why, we found that it caused Ananias and Sapphira. They misrepresented, they lied. And now we find that there is a murmuring between the Grecians and the Hebrews. Now, this is not a clash of two races. This is the conflict, not of anti-Semitism. The Hellenists were actually Greek-speaking Jews. The word Grecians here were Hellenists, and they were Greek-speaking Jews. They had a different cultural background than the Hebrews in Jerusalem. And there was naturally a misunderstanding. The number in the church at this time has been variously estimated, but generally at around 25,000. Now, we find that the early church here was not perfect. We sometimes hear the statement made today, we need to get back to the early church. And the early church was power conscious, and today we are problem conscious. Well, that's a half-truth. We today are certainly problem conscious, but the early church was. They had problems also, and they had problems, and they, I think, handled it in a very wonderful way. Now, the Greek-speaking Hebrews felt that their widows were neglected. In other words, this communal form of living wasn't working as well as they'd like for it to. certainly wasn't perfect. Carnality had come in. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, the apostles, they felt at this time, very candidly, that they should not give up the study of the word of God. 
They felt like that they should continue with that and that if they gave up the study of the Word of God and served tables and handled physical things, why, that that would be the undoing of them, that they should spend time in prayer and they should spend time in the study of the Word of God. That is something that every church should recognize, that your minister should have time to study the Word of God, should have a time for prayer. Unfortunately, the average church today is looking for a pastor who is an organizer and a promoter and a sort of a vice president to run the church, manager of some sort. That's unfortunate, and as a result, the church is suffering today. I had to move my study from downtown Los Angeles to my home, build a special room over the garage for a study. I found out that all I had in the church was an office, that they didn't intend for you to study there, didn't want you to study. Now, that's unfortunate, I think, for any church. So that the thing that the apostles say now, you choose you out men. Now, the deacons here were chosen by the church. And we're told, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, these men here were men now that were appointed because of the crisis that had arisen. The high plane to which the Spirit had brought the church was interrupted by the intrusion of satanic division and confusion. And the sharing of material substance which at first characterized the church, it gave way to the selfishness of the old nature. And the Grecians, evidently a minority group, they felt neglected and they demanded that their widows be given equal consideration with the Hebrews. And these apostles, they do not feel they should have the burden of this detail upon them at all. So they want to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, certain qualified men, seven of them, are chosen to assume the burden of handling the material substance. And I want you to notice their qualifications. And this is something, I'm afraid, is neglected today in the average church in the choosing of deacons. I hear it said sometime, fact of the matter is, I heard a man make this statement. He said, now, I don't want to be appointed to a spiritual office. He said, I wouldn't want to be an elder, but I'll be a deacon because you handle material things there. I believe that the office of deacon should require more spirituality and more wisdom and more prayer than any other office of any of the officers of the church. Now, first of all, that you will notice here, they had to be men of honest report. Their honesty should not be questioned. And friends, it's tragic when a church has a deacon or two whose honesty is questioned and that certain ones, maybe including the pastor, can't even trust them. They ought not to be in office. They should be, first of all, men of honest report. And they should be men full of the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. These men were full of the Holy Spirit here. 
You notice verse 3, honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, and then wisdom. Now, full of wisdom means that these men were spiritual. They were men that could make an application of spiritual truth. That was very important. I feel like they should be more spiritual than anyone else in the church for the very fact they are handling material things and they are apt to get a lopsided view of it. Now, you have also, let's drop down to verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. They were men of conviction, you see, real conviction. And then they were men full of faith. It says of Stephen here on several occasions that he was full of faith. And not only that, not only saving faith, but serving faith, witnessing faith. is isn't the amount of faith. It was the object of his faith. And then we're told in verse 8, Stephen full of faith and power. And they should be men of power. Now, these were the men that were to be chosen. Now, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer for the ministry of the Word. That's what the apostles are going to do. Verse 5 now, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. He's number one deacon, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, these were the seven men. I can't tell you anything about the last five, but the first two were outstanding men, Stephen and also this man that we have coming up a little later, Philip. These were outstanding men in the early church. Now, these seven deacons were the man now to serve in this office. And yet the record that we have of them was a record that was spiritual. Now, verse 6, "...whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them." Now, friends, there's a great deal of hocus-pocus and acrocadabra that's connected with this matter of laying on of hands. A great many people think that that has some spiritual power connected to it. And if you put your hand on somebody, that that communicates something. My friend, it communicates nothing. Well, the only thing that you can communicate by putting your hand on somebody is disease germs. You can pass them on, but you can't pass any power on. Well, what is the purpose of the laying on of hands? We had that back in Leviticus of the offering. The sinner would come, put his hand on the offering, and slay it. What does he mean? Well, it means that that offering now is taking his place. That offering is one with him. And so when the apostles put their hands on the deacon's head, that meant that now the deacons are partners with them, one with them in the service. And that's all in the world that it meant. It merely designates that these men for the office, denoting their fellowship in the things of Christ and their representation also for the corporate body of believers, that these men now are partners in this great enterprise in the early church. I would also have you note that this was a social service that they were engaged in. 
which is very important. I personally think that the church should take care of its own. That's my personal belief. I think that that ought to be true today. The early church, they had a poverty program, but it only included the members of the church. And the church today should take care of its own. Now, I want us to follow through here. We find that the church continues to grow. Verse 7, And the word of God increased. Oh, my friend, that is the important thing today, to have the word of God increasing in our day. And we want to see that. That is the purpose, if I may put in a little plug for our humble radio network. That's our desire, that the word of God might be increased. The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, don't miss that, because the priests were serving in the temple when the veil was rent in twain at the death of Christ. And these men, many of them, turned to the Lord after that. Now we have our attention drawn to this man, Stephen, and he's one of the great men in the early church. I want you to notice what is said about him now here in chapter 6 at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now these deacons apparently are one with the apostles in this matter of having these assigned gifts because they've been brought now into this unique position. Now, Stephen is a strong witness to the gospel, and he naturally incurs the hatred of certain sects. False witnesses are brought before the council to accuse Stephen. Now, will you notice what took place here? Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, or Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilician of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they subpoenaed men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And this man came closer to being an angel, by the way, than any man that has ever lived. Now, this man Stephen now is brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before them, and false witnesses are brought in. And the false witnesses tell a half of a truth, of course. The Lord Jesus did say that you destroyed the temple, but he wasn't speaking of the temple that was there. He was speaking of his own body. They misunderstood that. 
Now they misunderstood Stephen, that the temple in Jerusalem would be left desolate. It was very desolate at that time without him, by the way. And they are misinterpreting that, you see. And they're saying that he's going to change the customs of Moses. Well, that men are not saved by law, but are saved by grace today. They're telling probably a half-truth or maybe a fourth truth, but it isn't the full truth. Now we find in chapter 7, we have Stephen's defense here before the council. And what he does is to go over the history of the nation Israel. And he gives a recitation of their resistance and rebellion to God. And he charges the council of being betrayers and murderers of Jesus. And that, of course, genders their bitterest hatred. And it leads, of course, to the stoning of Stephen. Now, he's going over their history. And you have here in chapter 7 an inspired survey of the history of the nation. And he makes it very clear that there never was a time when the entire nation worshipped God, that it was always a remnant. It never was the entire nation. And so we find him beginning here. Then said the high priests, are these things so? They make the charge against him, and so he answers now. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. Now, that's a marvelous beginning of men. Well, they're his brethren, brethren in the flesh, and fathers. They are the older man. He's the younger man. I'm of the opinion, and we're going to see this later on, we sometimes hear it said that Christianity at the beginning was actually a youth movement. It's not altogether an accurate state that the early church was a youth movement. And the two men who constitute probably as prominent a place as any other two is Stephen, we're going to look at now, and Saul of Tarsus. And both of these men had a great deal to do in shaping the course of the church on the human plane. Both of them were remarkable young men, both gifted by the Holy Spirit. And the only time that they ever met, they were enemies. Each stood on the opposite side of the cross. And the cross divided Stephen and Saul as truly as it did the two thieves that were crucified there. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, he could say accurately the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And that's what he thought about that young man, Stephen. But we're going to see that later on. But now, here is this young man. He's the first martyr in the church. And he begins now, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. That is, listen to me. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon, our Haran as we would have it today, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Now, this man, Stephen, this is a master stroke. This message of his 
ordinarily passed over, and we're going to have time to go over it, not thoroughly, but at least to look at the high points in it. He goes back to the beginning of the nation. This nation began with Abraham. You're going to begin with the nation Israel. You have to go back to Abraham, and it's very important to go back to Abraham because that is the place they begin. And they don't go any farther back than that. You'll find that again and again, that it goes back to just Abraham. The genealogy that opens the New Testament and Matthew, written to the nation Israel, only goes back to Abraham. Now, if you want the one going back to Adam, you have to go to the Gospel of Luke. Now, actually, when you read the defense of Stephen, it's not so much a defense as it is a recitation of the history of the nation Israel and of their resistance as a nation and their rebellion to God, that it was always, at all times, a little remnant. Now, that is true today in the church, the organized church, the visible church that you and I see. A great many people say, well, do you think so-and-so is a Christian? you think this deacon is a Christian or that member is a Christian? Well, the question is the good question, but the answer is probably, no, they're not. And they say, my, well, then they ought not to be in the church. That's true. It's always been the little remnant from the very beginning, and that is true today. Now, Stephen goes over their history. He begins with Abraham, and Abraham believed God and he obeyed God. Faith always leads to obedience, of course. It's not saving faith if it doesn't. Now he said to him, verse 3, And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Now we saw the reason for that was that he was brought up in a home of idolatry. Verse 4, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into the land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. He's giving the story of Abraham and this is where Abraham believed God. God promised him a child. God promised him a land. He had neither one. <laughs> he believed God. Now, and God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Now he goes, you see, from Abraham, and he goes into this patriarchal period, and then he speaks of the brethren of Joseph, motivated by envy and hatred. 
And they sell Joseph into Egypt, and God overruled and used Joseph to save them. So what we have here is really the Spirit's interpretation of the Old Testament. Actually, it makes this a remarkable section. Continue reading now, beginning at verse 9. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt, and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, He sent out our fathers first, and at the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. And there carried over into Sychem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Now, we come to another period in the history of these people. Here, why Stephen reminds them of the deliverance out of Egypt and that God made Moses the deliverer and the Children of Israel, first they refused to follow him, and Moses had trouble with them all the way long. Now, will you notice, as we go through this section here, let me drop back. And when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, And evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Now, if you'll notice here the comments that Stephen adds, will confirm some of the things that we said when we were studying about Moses. I made the statement that Moses would have been the next Pharaoh, and he would have, because she brought him up for her own son, and she was Pharaoh's daughter. He had no sons. This Pharaoh didn't. He'd been the next in line. Now, verse 22, "...and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians." and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, there are several things that we need to say at this particular point. Because when we read about the fact that he was brought up in the wisdom of the Egyptians, well, the wisdom of the Egyptians is not to be despised even in this advanced day when we feel like we know about everything. We've never given the Egyptians full credit. For what they knew, they had developed mathematics and chemistry and engineering and architecture 
and astronomy to a very fine point. They had developed these fields of study in a way that was remarkable. Look at the pyramids. Look at the colors that they find in the tombs, colors that have stood the test of years. They're embalming the University of the Sun in that day, a pagan university, of course, highly developed. They knew the distance to the sun. They were not near as ignorant as we seem to think that they were. Now, Moses had the advantage of that day being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had the advantage of learning all that. Now, he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, he was outstanding. But there's something else that I should say. He was not prepared to lead God's people. fact of the matter is, all the learning of the world of that day did not equip him to lead God's people. Very candidly, friends, all the wisdom that men have today is not enough even to understand the Word of God. It's just difficult. The natural man will receive not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto them, neither can he know them. Why? They're spiritually discerned. This man Moses is learned in the wisdom of the day. He's not equipped to deliver God's people. He's not ready. And so God, after the first 40 years, put him out in the desert, on the backside of the desert, and gave him a B.D. degree, backside of the desert degree, and prepared him to become the deliverer. Verse 23, I'm reading. When he was full, 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now, notice, after 40 years, he's not prepared. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Now, notice this. He's doing something he thinks the fine thing to do. He's going to deliver his brethren. Verse 25, for he's a Supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Neither did Moses understand at this time. Now, verse 26, And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, we are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And so Moses is frightened. Then fled Moses at this saying, and he was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai the angel of the Lord, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him. Now notice this here. This man here wasn't prepared to deliver them. And when he wanted to deliver them, the people weren't prepared for him either, by the way. They wouldn't accept his leadership. They resisted it. Now, we find that when God appeared to Moses, verse 32, Now, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, 
for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I'm come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. God told Moses, I've heard their groaning. That was the reason. He saw their need. That's the reason he provided a Savior for you and me. It wasn't because of the fact we are such wonderful people. And he said, my, they're so lovely down there. I must go down and save them. They're so sweet. They're so kind. They're so loving of me. They're so faithful to me. No, God says we were just corrupt, rotten sinners, lost. And our lost condition is what appealed to him because he loved us. And that's the explanation. Now, will you notice verse 35? This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. You notice the emphasis that's placed here upon the ministry of the angels in the life of the nation Israel. And I think I should pause and say this, that the ministry of angels were for the nation Israel. And you'll find them very prominent. The law was given by the ministry of angels. Somebody says, how did God give it to Moses on the mount? Did God come down to Moses? Yes, but only as an angel. It was always by the ministry of angels. And there is no ministry of angels to the church. Now, we make a great deal at Christmas time about the angels. But who are the angels appearing to and for what purpose? Why, the angel appeared to Joseph. That was the ministry in the Old Testament. Angel appeared to Zacharias. Angels came to the shepherds. Angels appeared singing glory to God in the highest. But my friend, been no angels around my place recently, and there been none around your place. And I can say that because I know that if you're seeing them, you better see a psychiatrist or somebody because they have nothing to do with the ministry of the church. They did with the nation Israel. Now will you note, and I'm going to drop down now to verse 37, begin reading that, because here you have the wilderness experience that Stephen is mentioning. Now he recites this. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. Now, the word church here doesn't mean there was a church in the Old Testament. It's ecclesia. Ecclesia only means called out. And if you got a group called out to mob somebody, it would be a church. It's a called out body for any particular purpose. Now, this is he that was in the church, or the called out body, in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively or living oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Now, they didn't go back, actually, in a physical, material sense, but in their hearts they went back many, many times. And by the way, a great many folk today, they deplore certain sins in the world, sins of the flesh. 
I always think of what Dr. Morgan said years ago, speaking of Samson, says it's so easy to condemn Samson's sin of the flesh. And today, it's easy to point your finger and say, that's terrible. The point is this. You say, I don't live down there. Would you like to? Where's your heart? They went back to Egypt in their heart. They didn't want to go out there into the wilderness. Now let me read beginning at verse 40. Saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not. We know not what's become of him. And they didn't care. They had rejected him. They made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice under the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. See, they were always rebellious. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? They went into idolatry. And we remember that when we went with them through the wilderness. Now, this man Stephen becomes very strong at the end. Verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, that is, Joshua, into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. You see, it was David's idea. I've always thought it ought to be called David's temple, though Solomon built it. Now listen to this, verse 48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Now here is his condemnation of the religious rulers of that day. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Physically, they were circumcised, but in their heart and ears, uncircumcised. That is, they would not hear God any more than the crowd or the mob down through the years had not done. Ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets... Have not your fathers persecuted? And they've slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. The law was given by angels, you see. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. My, how they hated Stephen for saying the things he did. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, let's not argue about the right hand of God. Somebody says God's a spirit, which is the right hand. I don't know. The important thing, the right hand is the place of prominence, the place of honor. God says that he would glorify him, gave him a name which is above every name, and 
he would exalt him. He's highly exalted. He's on the right hand of God. Now he's standing on the right hand of God. And he went up there and he sat down, we're told. That means redemption was finished, but that doesn't mean he's not working today. And he's there to receive the first martyr. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Two young men, as we said at the beginning, they are together now for the first time, only time and last time. They are enemies. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. His body was put to sleep, and Stephen went into the presence of Christ, who stood up to receive him, the first martyr of the church. But there was standing there a man that day, another young man, and he is a Pharisee. He thought he had everything. But he looked up into heaven. As this man Stephen said, I see heaven open. And as he looked longingly up there, Saul could say to himself, I don't see anything, but I'd like to see something, because I have a very empty heart. I only had what Stephen has. Well, we're going to come across this man Saul again, you can be sure. Now, friends, we've come to a new section, actually the second major division that we have in the book of Acts. You'll recall, the Lord Jesus says, "...ye shall be witness unto me in Jerusalem." Then he said, "...in Judea and Samaria." Now, from chapters 8 through 12, we have the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Judea and in Samaria. Now, we left off last time with a most unusual scene. We saw two young men, both of them together, I suppose, had the greatest influence upon the early church. The first one that's mentioned is Stephen the deacon, the young man that gave up his life, the first martyr in the church. And the one that had charge of his stoning was a young Pharisee by the name of Saul. It says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And that means that he had charge, that he was there taking the lead in it. He was the cheerleader in the cheering section. And this young man, now Saul of Tarsus, he's amazed when he sees the face of Stephen and see him looking into the heaven, says that he sees the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And young Saul looked up. He didn't see anything, but... Friends, he wish he could. He will a little later. Stephen is the one, I think, that prepared him for the appearance of the Lord Jesus to him on the Damascus Road later on, which we'll see. Now, we have here in the first four verses, we see that Saul becomes the chief persecutor of the church, and then the church is scattered. Actually, he did the church a favor. They were 
settled upon their lees in Jerusalem, and they, I don't think, would have moved out had it not been for the persecution. And Saul of Tarsus led in that. I'm reading now chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, Judea and Samaria were the second territory they would go into. Judea surrounded Jerusalem, and Samaria was to the north. Now, will you notice verse 2, "...and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him." This, I think, is a design or a picture of a Christian burial. There is today the question that comes to us right along, well, should Christians be cremated? There's nothing in the Bible particularly against it. You wouldn't lose your salvation if your pot is cremated, that is for sure. But the method of burial for a Christian is to, it's like sowing seed. It's like putting someone in a motel and putting them to sleep. That's the way Paul speaks of it in 1 Thessalonians. Speaks in 1 Corinthians 15. So that you don't burn seed when you plant them, and you don't actually burn a person when you put them in a motel. At least you're not supposed to. There have been some bad hotel and motel fires. But that's not the proper way. And I would say that you give a testimony and a burial by taking a body, and this body of Stephen's must have been horribly mutilated, and they took him up tenderly, and they put him down in the ground, just as you'd plant seed, put him, as it were, in a motel. The body's gone to sleep. Stephen's gone into the presence of Christ who was waiting up there for him. But one day that body will be raised, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in weakness, raised in strength. Now, I can't see how cremation sets that forth. Here's the picture of real Christian burial. Now, I know that today the many of the undertakers say, well, we're running short of space. My friend, this old earth has been taken in bodies now for thousands of years. And still there's room. Is it the writer to the Proverbs? Our Ecclesiastes says that the grave never says enough. It's always moving in that direction. And I still believe this is the proper way for Christian burial. Now, let me move on, because that is actually a sidelight. And the reason I spent time with it, that's a question that comes to us constantly And apparently today it must be a pretty live issue in some areas. Now, verse 3, "...and as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison." Now, this is the young man now with zeal, as you remember he said concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He was a very zealous young man. Now, will you notice... 
Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now you see the effect of the persecution actually did not hinder the church. It furthered the work of the church. Paul said to the Philippians when he was put in prison in Rome, he said, the things that have happened unto me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. And I just don't believe that the church can ever be hurt from the outside. It can be hurt from the inside, and we're going to see that. We now are introduced to the second deacon that God used in a marvelous way. Verse 5, and we have here, Philip now becomes the chief witness abroad after the death of Stephen. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. The Lord Jesus says, You'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now they've gone to Samaria. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now Philip had the sign gifts of the early church. Not everyone had them, just these and places of leadership, these that were taking the word out. And there came the day when these sign gifts disappeared. And you say, when did they disappear? They disappeared right after the apostles. And when the canon of Scripture was established, it's the doctrine now, and it hasn't anything to do with the sign gifts. Now, will you notice verse 7? For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. There was great joy in that city. The coming now of the gospel into Samaria, of all places, it brought great joy. This man was well received. Now we begin to discover that there was coming into the church as it grew so fast. There came in those that were actually not believers at all. They were really unbelievers, but they made a profession. And here is one of them. And I'm reading verse 9 in chapter 8. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. You can't help if you claim to have a sign gift. You can't help but do the thing that this man did, that you're some great one. And I hear today, oh, these folk are very humble. Well, humility is something you can put on like a garment, for that matter, And humility doesn't manifest itself of leading services where you are healing, supposedly, and that you are about the only one that's around that can do it, by the way. Now, that's giving out that you're some great one. Now, that was Simon. And notice verse 10, "...to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God." Now, see... They felt like he was of God, even Simon the sorcerer. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. 
And there are a great many people today bewitched. My friend, do not bewitched by any man, by his power, even when he's giving out the Word of God. Don't look to man. Look to the Word of God, whether what he's saying is accurate. And look to God. Turn to him. When we get our eyes on man, we get our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what had happened there in Samaria. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And now this fellow, Simon, and let me say this about him, Philip came in contact with him, and apparently he made a profession of faith under the ministry of Philip. And he's the first, I think, religious racketeer in the church. But he's unfortunately not the last one. And he professes to be a believer during that sweeping revival of Philip. And he goes through all the outward ritual. He believes, and he's baptized, and he becomes a friend of Philip. And somebody says, well, my, if that's all true, then wasn't he really saved then? Listen to this. Verse 13, Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. He's exposed to Christianity, and he's impressed, though not converted. Notice that there are others here that are professing, but that doesn't mean that they are saved. Now, this is a case of, shall I say, head knowledge, or of just going along with the crowd. A great many people do that today. I've had quite a few letters from folk that have said this to me. Since I've been studying the Bible with you, I've begun to examine my own faith, whether it's a faith I got from somebody else or whether I'm just falling along with someone else, or whether I genuinely myself have been converted. It's well to do that. Paul said, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith or not. Now, this man Simon has all the outward trappings. When they examined him and said, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yes. And he was baptized. But, my friend, he's not saved at all. And notice verse 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now when they heard that there was a great moving of the Spirit down in Samaria, they sent two of the apostles down there. They wanted to check on it. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here are a great company of professing believers, and they had not been born again, for they were not baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit. They were not indwelt by the Spirit of God. They were not saved. Verse 16, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just the outward. And that, my friend... Never will make you a Christian just to go through a ceremony. And now, notice, this gives us the background of why Simon was able to put over his racket here on the others. Now, he liked this idea of performing miracles. 
And I read now verse 17. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, that brought them into partnership with the apostles and the gospel, and they now believed in Christ. I think that Philip probably had not made all the conditions and the facts of the gospel. The Spirit of God had not yet come into that area. Now, another viewpoint that should be considered is this. It took an apostle to open up each one of these areas. Peter on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Peter and John in Samaria, Judea and Samaria. And Paul the apostle out to the Gentiles. It took an apostle to open up the world to the preaching of the gospel. I personally believe that is the most satisfactory explanation. Now, will you notice? And when Simon saw that through laying on apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. This is verse 18. Saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this man, Simon... He wanted to pay for the gift. Why? Well, he's a religious racketeer. He's going to use it for profit. And he wants that. How many claims are made today by individuals that certain great miracles take place in their meetings, and they very humbly say they have nothing to do with it? Well, then you have nothing to do with it, then why do you permit that type of thing to continue to deceive the people? Bewitch is the word used here. And my friend, there have been religious racketeers around bewitching the multitudes from that day to this. That hurts the church more than anything else. Persecution from the outside didn't hurt it. It scattered it and actually was for the furtherance of the gospel. But when they got inside and were baptized, they hurt the church when they professed to be believers and were not believers. That's where the church has always been hurt. Jesus Christ was betrayed from the inside. He was betrayed by one of his apostles to his nation. His nation betrayed him to the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire crucified him. That's the way that it has happened, and today he's betrayed in the church from the inside. I don't think anybody outside the church can ever hurt the church. It's when they get on the inside. It's like the wooden horse brought into the city of Troy. That city was impenetrable. It was invulnerable until that wooden horse got on the inside. The devil started out persecuting the church, fighting it from the outside, decided that wouldn't work. Then he joined it. And my friend, when he gets inside, that's when you have trouble. Oh, how many pastors can testify to that today? And there's some listening to me right now that I know are saying amen. But notice Simon Peter's answer to this man. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You see, money, 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 that was the important thing. To this man, verse 21, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Now, that's the reason I said he's not converted. Simon Peter said he was not converted. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. Now, Simon Peter says to him, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You can't make it any stronger than that, can you, friends, than this man Simon Peter did. Now, verse 24, Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Now, he doesn't ask to be prayed for that he might be saved. He just wants none of these things to happen to him. I do not know. I have no right to judge the man. I do not think he was ever saved. Verse 25, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now the gospel, friends, is starting out to the ends of the earth. It's now left Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where the apostles will remain. There'll be a church there, but the center will soon move to Antioch. Then it'll move to Ephesus. Then it will move down to Alexandria. Then it will come up to Rome. The center of the church will begin to shift from now on. And today, well, I don't think there's any particular center of the church. It's gone to the ends of the earth today. And I believe that one of the finest vehicles to get it to the ends of the earth is the radio, a mechanical means today, where we have fallen down probably as human beings. Now, radio can do what we, humanly speaking, could never have done. We come to a new section now, verses 26 to 40. We are brought into another part of the ministry of Philip. That in Samaria doesn't sound too good, does it? But the gospel went there, and many believed. There were many genuine believers. But this was given to show that evil was coming into the church. And in contrast to Simon the sorcerer, we are going to see this man Philip go down and lead an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And he was genuine. But notice verse 26, "...and the angel of the Lord..." spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, this area of Samaria is really north of Jerusalem. And now he's told to go way down south, by the way. And Gaza, it's over along the Mediterranean, and this was the normal route back down into Egypt and Ethiopia. And so he's on the way home, and he's been to Jerusalem. And Philip is to go down there now, having spoken to the multitudes in Samaria. He sent down to a desert, and when he was sent there, there was nobody there. But when he got there, here comes the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's to witness to him. Now we come to where Philip has been called to leave this great moving of the Spirit of God in Samaria, and to go south down into a place called Gaza. And it's a desert. And when he went down, there was no one there. 
And we are told he arose and went. I'm reading verse 27 now, chapter 8. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Now we have recorded here in the next two or three chapters the three remarkable instances of conversion. And I think that these are three that have been lifted out, given to us particularly for a lesson. We have here in chapter 8 the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, a son of Ham. We have in chapter 9 the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a son of Shem. In chapter 10, we have the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a son of Japheth. And you'll recall that the human family was divided into these three different areas, not only ethnological but geographical, after the flood. These were sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now the gospel reaches out to representatives of these three divisions of the human family. And also, you will notice that in a conversion that there are brought in three factors, and they must be brought into focus before there can be a conversion. And all three are evident in these representative conversions. First of all, the Holy Spirit must lead. Now, the Holy Spirit had taken this man Philip up into Samaria, and there was a great moving of the Spirit of God. And then the Spirit of God moved him down to Gaza. And again, you see a moving of the Spirit of God in the life of this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, that is something that's essential, is the leading of the Spirit of God. I'm afraid that today there's a great deal of personal work that is done that is done not just in a haphazard manner, but is done without the leading of the Spirit of God. I believe that we ought to make it a matter of definite prayer before we talk to anyone. Talk to the Lord before you talk to an individual about the Lord. You can always talk to the Lord about the individual and get the leading of God before you move. Somebody says, I want the Spirit to lead me. Well, may I say to you, what we need is for the Spirit to go ahead and to call us up where He is, by the way. And we want to be where the Spirit of God is moving. That's the first thing that is essential in a conversion. And you find it here in the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch. The Spirit of God led Philip down there. The Spirit of God will lead him. And watch that in all three of these then you must have the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that is always essential. And the Holy Spirit will always take the things of Christ and reveal them unto an individual. And it's the Spirit of God using the Word of God. But wait just a minute. There has to be a human instrument. There must be the man of God. And when the man of God takes the Word of God directed by the Spirit of God, there generally comes into existence a Son of God. 
one that is born again. And therefore, you have here the record of the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch now, and I want you to notice that today in particular. We read here that this man of Ethiopia, he had charge of all her treasure. Now, he was her secretary of the treasury. He was an official, a very high official in that day. And this man was a man that was not traveling alone. He had with him, evidently at this time, a great retinue of servants and of minor officials with him. And he wasn't sitting up in the chariot holding the reins with one hand and a book in the other hand. Believe me, that's like a driver in Los Angeles. But this man is sitting back in the chariot, and there's a parasol over him, and he has a chauffeur, and he's riding in style, friends. This man is not like the little card that we were given in Sunday school. That just doesn't quite represent what took place here. We are told he's a man of Ethiopia. He was her secretary of treasure, and he'd come up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, he was a proselyte, but he was returning and sitting in his chariot. He read Isaiah the prophet. Now, what we have here is this man who's been to the center of religion, the capital of all religion, a God-given religion, and he's leaving, and he's in the dark. He's reading Isaiah, but he doesn't know what he reads. Now, notice the way this comes about. Then the Spirit said unto Philip. Now, the Holy Spirit is leading, and the Holy Spirit must lead in any conversion. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, and Philip is the man of God. And the Spirit now takes the man of God and tells him, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And the Word of God's already in that chariot, for the Ethiopian eunuch is reading it. Now will you notice, And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. Here's the Word of God. Here's the man of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. When you bring them all three together, you get a conversion. And Philip ran thither to him, heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And Philip is a hitchhiker. And this man coming with this great retinue of public officials across the desert, Philip asked him, says, You understand what you're reading there? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me. Now, he needed help. And therefore, the Spirit of God sent Philip over there to give him that help. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now, he's a hitchhiker with his thumb out, and the Ethiopian eunuch stops, brings him up in the chariot, says, maybe you can help me. And the place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? Now, where was he reading? Well, I'm sure that all of you say, well, he's reading in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And you say, well, if he's reading at this particular section, 
That means he must have been reading for some time, so he had to read back. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we steen him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the 53rd of Isaiah, in which is reading. Now, the question is this, verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Now, what a marvelous place to begin. You see, when the Spirit of God leads, how wonderfully everything opens up. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, friends, when the Spirit of God is leading, he'll take the things of Christ and show them unto you. And he will use the Word of God. I disagree with these today that say they were converted by the hearing of a song. Now, the song may have affected you emotionally and led your will to make a decision. But my friend, if there wasn't the Word of God somewhere in the background, it wasn't a conversion. You have to have the Word of God. How important that is. And this man, Simon Peter, that God so wonderfully used, as we've seen, he made it very clear that if you're going to be saved, the Word of God has to be involved in it and has to be involved in it in such a way that, well, you just wouldn't be born without it. Listen to him. In 1 Peter 1.23, he says, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever." For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So it's the Spirit of God using the word of God. Now what's going to happen? As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. Now, don't think that when verse 35 ends, these men didn't talk things over. They had quite a conversation. And when they finally came up to where there was water, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Now, Philip has already had an experience back up there with another one who was Simon the sorcerer. And he's not about to have a repetition of that. And when this man asked for water baptism, he said to him, If you believe with all your heart. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
He believes that he's his Savior. And verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. Actually, he's not needed anymore, you see. He just absolutely doesn't walk off the page of Scripture. He's snatched off the page of Scripture. He's not needed anymore. What happens? Well, the Ethiopian eunuch rides off the page of Scripture in his chariot. He went on his way rejoicing. And what about this man? Well, did you know that the first great church was not in the United States, that it was not in Europe, and that it was not in Jerusalem, it was not in Asia Minor. The first great church was in North Africa, was in Ethiopia. The Ethiopian eunuch evidently went back, and through his witness and his influence, a church was begun there. great deal could be said about that church. Now, what about Philip? Verse 40, but Philip was found at Azotus. Now, that's Ashdod. Ashdod is over in the Gaza Strip. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, you will find that from Ashdod, he went up through Joppa. Tel Aviv is there today. It wasn't there then. Joppa was there. And then he went on up to Caesarea, preaching the gospel along the coast. You see, the gospel now has gone out to Samaria and to Judea. It's moving in that direction, and we've had a remarkable conversion, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. But not only the Ethiopian eunuch. Notice something else here. 